When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Need to Know, real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the U.S., Bryce Zabel. Well, it's the beginning of a new year, and there is so much going on with the subject of unidentified aerial phenomena that you need to know about that we've had to create a podcast just to do that. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means now that Harry Reid has left the stage and how the media covered that news, also about how UAP is a global issue with global evidence and how taking a wait-and-see approach may not be a good idea. I'm Bryce Zabel. I'm coming to you from outside Los Angeles, California, here in the United States, and my partner on this brand-new endeavor is Ross Coulthart across the world in Australia, just outside of Sydney. And Ross, my man, I just can't wait to hear what you've been working on. G'day, Bryce, and uh, yeah, Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners and viewers. Um, Look, I would be remiss, I think both of us want to really fulsomely acknowledge the contribution that Senator Harry Reid made to the whole issue of the study of UAPs. It was Harry Reid who, I think it was 2007 when he was the Senate Majority Leader, initiated what was initially known as the um, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, ATIP, later known more correctly as ORSAP, the Advanced something or other weapons special. Oh, anyway, I won't go there. It's too long. All of these acronyms, it's too much. But basically, it was Harry who initiated what was essentially a Pentagon study of UFOs. And, and frankly, his achievement, his contribution in that regard is inestimable. I think the uh, the consequences of Harry's contributions will only really be known in years to come. And his passing is a great sadness. And more importantly, uh, the efforts that he made to shed light on this intriguing mystery are only now beginning to emerge. You know, it's also very interesting to me that Harry Reid has become sort of that that hero of the UAP movement, because he never seemed to quite catch on as an exciting persona in the political stage. I mean, he he kind of even though people have played up, you know, the controversies that he may have stepped into. The truth is, he seemed like a pretty uh, staid persona, if you will, on the political stage. And so for him to suddenly come to the forefront as being this person who helped get funding for UAP research is really extraordinary. And the fact that he not only did that, but then spent the better part of his retirement from the Senate thinking about it, talking about it, and advocating for greater openness on the topic really does uh, strike a chord with me and with, I think, a lot of our listeners. And that's the key issue, Bryce, because the fact that Harry Reid was Senate Majority Leader means, and a lot of people miss this, that he was a member of the so-called Gang of Eight. 
And Harry was briefed as a result of that membership into the deepest, darkest secrets in the US government and military. He was briefed into all the special access programs that a lot of government uh, congressmen are not allowed to know about. The oversight committees don't even get briefed about. He was aware of the waived unacknowledged special access programs. And more importantly, his... um, what do you call it over there? His electorate, uh, the area that he represented, Nevada, uh, Nevada his right. home state of Nevada. That's where Area 51 is located. And that's the somewhat mythical United States Air Force facility where a lot of the testing of high technology happens. And of course, it's the rumored location by you know UFO people and conspiracy theorists about the place where the government supposedly got flying saucers stashed away in a cave somewhere. So if anybody knows what was really going on, it was Harry Reid. And assuming he was constrained by national security imperatives and not able to talk about what he knew, I think it's very, very important to acknowledge that it was Harry in 2009 who wrote a letter arguing that the Pentagon UFO program had made so much progress with the investigation of highly sensitive, unconventional aerospace-related findings that I think he said will will likely lead to technological improvements Mm. or advancements. And he recommended the creation of a special access program. And of course, he was declined that access. And the big question remains, why was he declined that access? Why was this Pentagon um, UFO investigation program declined the special access program status that would have given them the access to these top secret, highly secret, compartmentalized secret programs that are going on inside the US government? I think Harry (laughs) a lot more than he could let on about he, he certainly did. And by the way, let's put a shout out to our good friend and fellow investigative reporter, George Knapp, who Excellent. maintained a friendship all those years with Harry Reid and who actually was very instrumental in, in sort of Harry's Harry Reid's blossoming of his, his knowledge on this topic um, and, and, and managed to cultivate that friendship and that professional relationship over the course of many years. The only answer one could really have to your question, though, about, well, why would he be denied access when he's such an important fellow in the United States government is that somebody's got something they don't want to talk about and they don't want him talking about it. They don't want him knowing about it, in which case you have to ask, what in the world is that? Which kind of leads me to my pet peeve of the week. Um, and, And I I, I have to just put it out there because uh, even though it's not about Harry Reid per se, his death has managed to put this in the forefront. Um, in the immediate aftermath of Harry Reid's passing, of course, uh, most news organizations, certainly in the mainstream media, have been getting prepared for this for a while. So they had obituaries ready to go that they just had to buff up before they went to print or to, to air with them. And I watched as many of them as I could. I read as many as I could. And I was blown away at the complete lack of mention in obituary after obituary after obituary for his work in UAP, his work to understand it, his work to get funding for it, and the fact that he spent a great deal of his retirement thinking and talking about it. It was missing in action. Uh, There was everything else there. 
There was a lot of talk about him being a boxer when he was a young man. There was a lot about him growing up in poverty and where he grew up. There was a lot about his political uh, issues and how he fought for various things and how he called Mitt Romney names during the campaign. But there was just nothing about UAP. Uh, and, it, and it really bothered me because it's not about dissing Harry Reid and something that was important to him. But if, as a journalist, I have to say, if something that is really important to the person who passes away and you don't mention it, I think you missed the story. What do you think? I completely agree. And in fact, it was the same here in Australia. And I follow a lot of the British and overseas newspapers. There was very little coverage. I think the Daily Mail mentioned it in the UK. But um, frankly, a lot of the media coverage when it talked about Harry Reid's involvement with the UAEP issue tended to ridicule or mock it. I'll be honest, Bryce, I think as a member of the mainstream media, as somebody who's worked in mainstream media now for 35 plus years, I think nothing underlines more the growing irrelevance of mainstream media than the fact that it is completely failing to cover this issue properly. UAPs are and will soon become one of the biggest stories of the 21st century. I'm in absolutely no doubt about that. And I think it's very, very telling, although I don't necessarily agree with some of the things he says, I think it's very, very telling that Joe Rogan's podcast, which has featured an enormous number of UAP issues, including very good interviews with people like Elon Musk and um, uh, Bob Lazar and uh, you know people who are some of the key figures, including George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell, I think it's very telling that Joe Rogan's podcast, which is not, if you like, mainstream media, no, it's definitely not. getting 11 million views, 11 million views, which is, I think it's 11 or multiple times the best reports on CNN. And I think it's very telling the media needs to wake up to itself. It's not realizing the significance, the enormous import of what's happening here. It's still locked in a paradigm of, oh, my God, UFOs. Well, default by default, we must treat this with ridicule or stigma or taboo. When, in fact, we know, I mean, Harry Reid's involvement alone right. is enough to acknowledge that this is a real issue. And it's funny. I mean, we still get the same thing here in Australia. I get called onto TV shows or radio shows in Australia, and there's always that pathetic playing of the X Files music behind the uh, behind the story, or a, a mythical sort of flying saucer put on the it's... green screen behind me, and it immediately diminishes the seriousness of the subject matter. <laughs> and I, I don't know why it bewilders me. I well, I, I think. We could probably throw some theories out. The first thing I'm going to say here, though, is, is while I agree that mainstream media has basically uh, missed the boat on this thing and seems to be uh, determined to continue to miss out on this story, I'm not ready to write them off uh, because I think that what they need is more of a kick in the ass. Uh, they need to understand that this is exactly what you discussed a few uh, minutes ago, which is it's going to be the biggest story of the 20s, and probably the 30s and maybe the 40s. It's just going to be the, the, the flower that keeps unfolding uh, from, from a journalistic point of view. And if people uh, want to get the audience, they're going to have to wake up to it. Uh, they don't have to do it like Joe Rogan. They can do it differently. They can do it responsibly, but they should take all the X-Files music and the uh, little uh, green aliens 
and they should take all the titters and the the smirks and the they should take away the idea that all television newscasts uh, don't lead with this story, but they they go to break on the story uh, and and kind of downplay it. That stuff needs to change, and I think there are people out there who who want to see it change. We talked about this just last week because we both admire Gotti Schwartz, and yet here's a guy who seems to understand the storyline, and he got X Files music pay, played during his report. So okay, that's one take. Let's let's ask ourselves this: Why is this happening, though? I mean, these are not uh, these are not stupid people. These are bright people that got these jobs because they fought to keep them, and they've done some, in many cases, good journalism on other stories. Why are they missing this one? I think there's a variety of issues that need to be explored, and I think we'll have to deal with them in the next segment because we're coming to the end of our first segment. And I, I, I think just to tease, though, what we're going to talk about next, I, I think the issue is fundamentally there's a taboo, there's a stigma, but also I think what people don't realise is it's a manufactured taboo. It's a manufactured stigma. And also, more importantly than that, it's not just America. We're talking about coverage now of a phenomenon that is global. And I'm fascinated with the, de the degree of work that is being done that should be acknowledged by people who are, I think, sometimes peremptorily dismissed as ufologists. What they are are researchers. They're doing work that the mainstream media is not doing. And it's being done all over the world. And more importantly, some of the best work has been done by governments themselves. And I find that fascinating because the role that other governments have played in researching the phenomenon really hasn't been acknowledged that much. And I think that's an issue that we should get into in our next segment because frankly, we need to know. Hello there, welcome back to Need to Know. I'm Ross Coulthard and my colleague in crime is Bryce Zabel. So earlier on, we were talking about the fact that the news media didn't really cover much at all the passing of Harry Reid in the context of UAPs, UFOs. And frankly, Bryce, I think it's a serious, egregious oversight because Harry Reid's contribution to this story it's important for the simple fact that this is going to become the story of the 21st century. And I know I sound like a tinfoil hat nutter when I say that, but I really do think this. I, I genuinely think that the subject that we're talking about here is going to become the issue of our time, probably a lot sooner than we expect. And I suspect a lot of this is going to have to do with the timing of the legislation that Senator Harry Reid had a key role in passing. Do you want to record that well, for our audience? Yeah, the, the National Defense Authorization Act was signed into law uh, right uh, uh, after Christmas uh, in, in 2021. And what uh, it included was the idea that we would start to investigate UAP in a serious basis with funding and that we would look into uh, what, what the cause was. We would demand uh, sharing of intelligence between various intelligence gathering agencies and that we would demand a yearly unclassified and classified report uh, 
on, on the topic. So it's a pretty big deal. And I, I think it ties in with the whole Harry Reid thing. It wasn't just Harry Reid that was being ignored in a lot of the mainstream uh, press. It was also the idea that when the NDAA passed and, and the, uh, the media reports began to characterize, well, it did this, it did that, it did this. It never mentioned UAP. Those were also a big fail. Uh, and yet the UAP aspect of it could potentially have the greatest national security implications of anything in the damn uh, report uh, next to, I guess, war with China or Russia. So it was a it was a pretty big omission. I wonder, by the way, Ross, if if it's not so much individual reporters who are missing this, although there are many, but it's the reporting institutions that are a little bit scared about it and and have not given the go ahead and the permission to cover this as aggressively as some of their own reporters would like to see happen, which is why I still, as I said, have a little bit of hope here that once it becomes clear that this is a well, it's, it's clear to me now, but once it becomes clear across the board that this is a real thing that uh, needs to be investigated on a deep level, uh, why wouldn't a journalistic organization want to cover it? So hopefully uh, that message will go forward because, you know, as we were talking about it uh, prior, there are a lot of journals that we like out there. You know, there's, there's people doing good work. Um, some of the people uh, have had to create their own institutions. So I, I talk about the debrief and the drive, for example, these are institutions that, that, that of, of journalism that are sort of growing up to cover some of the uh, areas that have been ignored. I'm looking for the Washington Post and the New York Times and uh, Time and Newsweek and all these other mainstream organizations to really get in the act to the extent that they've covered uh, UFO, UAP news so far. It, it seems to me that they cover it with these survey pieces. They sort of regurgitate what's already in the news, but they don't advance it. We'll know that we're actually making a big journalistic change when individual organizations in the news business start competing with each other to break new stories. That's going to be the big change of 2020s. Yeah, look, if I can, I don't, I'm not making excuses for these big papers, but I know the issue for our friends, um, Ralph Blumenthal and um, Leslie Kane, who did the original New York Times sure. work with Helene Cooper, was there was a lot of background information, but as a journalist, especially on an august institution like the New York Times, who I've done work with in the past, it is a formidable checking process. And one of the things that's quite disturbing as a journalist is when you're working on a collaborative investigation with a paper like the New York Times, you actually have to share your sources. You have to say, look, my source is Joe Bloggs, and he's telling me X, Y, and Z. And often this is a person that you've been talking to confidentially for years and working to get them over the line. And frankly, it's very, very hard to do that in this national security environment. I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm talking to people who are probably in breach of their national security obligations um, by, by telling me things about what they call the program. And I know Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal because I was talking to uh, one of them during their investigations for their last New York Times story in 2020. I know that they were talking to a lot more people than they put into the paper. And uh, in the end, they ended up using Senator Harry Reid and Dr. Eric Davis as their primary on the record sources to talk about the quite sensational allegation of retrieved non-terrestrial debris. 
which is so, essentially code for non-human technology. And uh, frankly, I know because I've spoken to some of their sources, I suspect, I, I know that, that there, there are other, other people there behind them, behind their on-the-record sources that were Senator Harry Reid and Dr. Eric Davis who were prepared to come forward, but they got cold feet, they got scared. And frankly, I would be scared too because there is a very, very rigorous um, US intelligence service and US military in, in, incursion on restraining coverage of this issue. And a lot of people call it the truth embargo, but I suspect that for quite plausible national security reasons, the United States is trying to keep a lid on this matter. One, it's lied. It's lied to the public. It's lied to the Congress. It's deliberately misled congressmen and senators. So there's an embarrassment factor there. But more importantly than that, I think they're trying to protect genuinely, out of a heartfelt, genuine concern, a national security imperative. They don't want China or Russia to get the technological advantage that they perceive they can derive from, if this is true, this recovered technology. What do you reckon? I, I think that's absolutely correct. I wanted to just focus a little bit for a moment, because we're talking about journalism, on how you've gotten all these people to talk to you. Um, you've gotten them to talk to you on background, I assume. Uh, certainly, they're maintaining their anonymity by name as on-the-record sources. I got a couple of things I'd like to clarify uh, for our, our listeners. Um, how did you go about finding these people? How did you get them to talk to you? Have you had discussions with them as you talk to them about literally giving their names up and going on the record? And do you believe that it's going to take some time before people start to go on the record in a print my name, I don't care what they say uh, kind of way? Bryce, as you would know, having done the kind of work that I've done in the past, the most important thing for any investigative journalist frankly, to preserve, preserve my reputation is to protect my sources. If you blow a source, you're effectively neutralizing that person as a witness and probably putting their entire career in jeopardy. So the biggest imperative for me when I started my research was protecting the confidentiality of sources. And I know, and I think a lot of journalists aren't aware of this, that if you just ring somebody cold or if you email them, you leave a metadata trail. And I'm sure it's the same in the US under your home security laws sure. as it is for us in Australia. I, I've seen, uh, as a journalist, I was once presented by a public servant source of mine with all of the detail of all of the people who I'd called in the government on my mobile phone for the preceding 12 months. And he'd obtained this without warrant from our federal police under what's called a telecommunications surveillance order. And it made me realize, it really made me sit up and realize as a journalist, I had to wake up to myself and learn to become much cleverer in approaching people. So for this investigation, I wrote letters I, with the help of some people in the US who know how to obtain home addresses. I literally obtained home addresses. And in some cases, I was so concerned about using the actual mail system. I had letters hand delivered by friends of mine in places wow. like Washington and New York and uh, different parts of uh, Nevada and Utah. I was so paranoid to make sure that these people felt that my approach to them, my initial approach to them, had been done in as secure a way as possible. And indeed, some of the approaches that I made were when I was working for Australia's 60 Minutes, and I was based 
for a while in Washington, D.C. or New York, and I would literally go and knock on people's doors cold and approach them cold, knowing that that was their home, home address. And on more than a number of occasions, I was politely told to uh, go forth and multiply and get the hell out of their yeah. house. But on a number of occasions, people, um, especially when I took a cake, I always like to take a cake. Take a cake. If you break bread with people, it's quite nice if they realize you're a nice person. But essentially, I, I made it my imperative to protect sources. And so I did what I could do to protect those sources. And then we established a way of communicating with each other. I'm not happy with Signal. I'm not happy with Telegram. I'm not even happy with WhatsApp. I don't think any of those encrypted apps are properly secure. So I use dead letter drops on mm -hmm. the dark web. I, I, for some of my most protected sources, I use um, VPNs, Tor, the, which is the uh, dark web encryption system. And I, I basically use ways of protecting sources that are, that are completely off the grid. All of and that I've, is I've something, become, something- I'm so paranoid about it, frankly. All of that is something that you need to be doing. And I think it also means that if we have to continue to do that through the rest of the decade, we aren't going to make the big strides. So uh, hopefully more and more of these people are going to find ways, especially in retirement, uh, of, of coming forward. I had to laugh, though, when you said you brought a cake in the Dark Skies pilot that I wrote in the May, in the very first episode uh the John Lowengard character goes to see Betty and Barney Hill, and he brings a, a, a fruitcake with him to talk his way in. And, uh, uh, the, you know, certain things just never get old. The one thing I was going to say, listening to you talk about these strategy and tactics, it's more tactics that you're talking. The strategy is to get people to talk. Um, the tactic is bring them a fruitcake or uh, write to them privately in a way that they can feel secure about. I, I find it kind of interesting because we started to say internationally, there's a lot of uh, research going on as well. It, it isn't just the sources we need to talk to. There's a lot of material that's already been put out there in, in studies and so forth that, that people don't even know about. Uh, I was just reading over the Condine report. Uh, I, I hope I said that right. But one of the things it said, this is a UK report that uh, I believe uh, came out uh, in the 2000s. Is, do I have that right? Okay. Uh, just, just so people know, this is something you could go quote right now. Um, it said in that report summary uh, it, that UAP exists is indisputable. Credited with the ability to hover, land, take off, accelerate to exceptional velocities, and vanish, they can reportedly alter their direction of flight suddenly and clearly can exhibit aerodynamic characteristics well beyond those of only known aircraft or missiles, either manned or unmanned. I mean, come on. This is in a public document. Our own uh, UAP task force document from the 25th says it a little, what that says in a little less uh, perfect a way, but there's great information. And, and of course, the French put out their Cometa report um, in, I believe, 99. Um, there's just so much good information. It's time for journalists, though, to start tilling that soil as well. I know that you've done your homework because I read your book and you had clearly read all these reports and, and called upon them. Uh, and as, as we all need to start doing in our, in our writing about this and in our talking about it. And it 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 can go hand in glove, I believe, with uh, the people who have some inside knowledge. I've talked to my share of them as well. Uh, I do find them to be very nervous. Um, 
but I also find something uh, really interesting. When you talk to one person and they don't come away thinking you're irresponsible, and in fact, maybe you brought them a nice cake, they're apt to say, you know, you should really talk to my friend. Or they go call their friend up and say, you should really talk to Ross. And you start to get other people and you get this web of journalistic uh, tying together. And that's where stories come from, my friends. And, and I think that's why your book is a success and why there are going to be new stories broken in 2022, because all that information is out there and people are just itching to tell it. And as we've said on this uh, podcast before, Washington leaks like a sieve, and we are about to hear some of that. Look, I completely agree with you about Project Condine, Bryce, and I think the significance of that document for me is that it stated 25 years ago, it was originally written in 1996-1997, and not only did it say that the, the phenomenon of UFOs, unidentified objects, is indisputable, it also dismissed any notion that they could be prosaically explained. It basically said that they, there were genuine unexplained cases. And I think there's a little bit more that we need to discuss about the fact that UFOs, UAPs are being discussed internationally, not just in the United States. So let's come back in a moment on Need to Know with what's going on around the world on UAPs. You know, it's not easy to stay current on a topic as broad and as compelling as UAP when there's so much going on. And, you know, like Ross and I both listen to other podcasts, we both read a lot of other articles, we read books, we try to, try to stay current. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard about most recently with this newly passed NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, is people saying when they were interviewed about it, well, what do you think is going to come out of that? And I heard two different people on two different podcasts say the phrase, well, we'll just have to wait and see. And I, I don't know, that just rubbed me the wrong way. It's not how I roll. I, I think proactive is the way we have to go on this thing. Uh, if we wait and see what the government is going to do, it means we don't even get that next report until October 31st of 2022, quite likely. I think we need to not be waiting and seeing. I think we need to be thinking and doing. And I think that's what uh, we've been talking about, Ross. What, what say you? I completely agree. I mean, the whole notion of wait and see is absurd because I don't think the government wants the public to know the full story. I think at the moment, the problem, the problem is that... Um, the United States government is sitting on things it doesn't want to disclose. So by definition, the attempts to provide reports to Congress will be attempting to constrain the, the narrative. They will try and limit how much they reveal. So I think the best that we're going to hear in October next year in the first report from the Pentagon is essentially an acknowledgement that the mystery is real, a repetition of the June 25th, 2021 report to the Congress. We might get a few more details about anomalous objects seen in our skies, space or underwater. But I don't think the US particularly wants to talk about retrieved technology or attempts by countries to back engineer this technology. It's just too loopy in the views of mainstream media to even discuss that notion. But the simple fact is that it's on the public record now that so many officials are saying there is a reality here that needs to be properly engaged with. And just to come back for a moment to the issue we were talking about in the last mm -hmm. segment about the global 
addressing of this issue. One of the things in the British Condine report that I thought was especially telling was that the British 25 years ago in this official Ministry of Defence report that I should, by the way, acknowledge that our colleague, Professor David Clark, a very noted UFO researcher in the United Kingdom, had an instrumental role in getting declassified. It's a phenomenal document. And in that document, there is an acknowledgement that the Russians had had attempts to bring down UFOs foiled and jet fighters and their pilots were lost in these engagements. These were admissions made by senior officials of the Soviet military at the end of the Cold War to British investigators. And there were also admissions made by the Soviets at the time at the end of the Cold War, not so much now, that there were attempts being made by the Russians to replicate the technologies that they'd seen, which by implication means they've recovered some of these technologies. So there's a hell of a lot going on behind the scenes. And my sources have told me as well, privately, that there is indeed a Soviet effort, a Russian effort, sorry, to back engineer technology that has been recovered by the Russians in a secret facility in the Ural Mountains. So... Oh there's, there's a hell of a lot going on here globally that I think is far beyond anything that the United States is going on. And I think there's, I can tell you so much fruitful areas for um, investigation. I, well, I'm blown away by the response that I've had from readers and viewers and listeners to our podcast. And I, I think that, um, you know, if any of this information can be demonstrated to be accurate and true, the best way to make things happen is for people to stop waiting for the mainstream media oh. to engage with this issue and don't, to actually start doing this research themselves. Don't wait for mainstream media to do it and don't wait for the government to tell you, start, start looking into it. And, and clearly, if crash wreckage is the next big shoe to drop and the first shoe was simply that, oh yeah, we have military encounters and we have some of them uh, on video that we can show you. And if the next big one is crash wreckage, first, crash wreckage is physical. All right. So that that's that's that physical evidence people are talking about. Uh, secondly, it doesn't necessarily require the United States to come forward with what it knows first, as you pointed out. Yes, maybe the United States has something from Roswell or a half a dozen other crashes, and it would be nice to know about that. Uh, and that can be an, a big race. Uh, but there's also other countries out there, including Russia. I, I remember, again, that our friend George Knapp actually smuggled some documents out of the Soviet Union or, or Russia. It, I guess it still was. Uh, it was recently in 1994 when he got them out. And so there's been a there's a wealth of documents. They come not just from uh, the U.S. and Russia. They also come from China. They come from uh, Brazil, uh, France, uh, the U.K., uh, there's a number of South uh, American nations that have also looked into these things and been instrumental. So as people start to come forward, uh, and this, if this story elevates itself, I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as game over, but there is one that takes you to the next level. In, in video game parlance, what you do is you level up, right? Well, if there's ever going to be anything that's going to level up this discussion and do it in a heartbeat, it's going to be some journalistic effort whether it originates here or from the Vatican, I don't care where, but if somebody's got crash wreckage and can prove it, uh, that takes us to the next level of discussing this thing. And I just, uh, we were talking about the Condine report. Uh, I had read it a number of years ago. And then of course I was interested knowing we might discuss it uh, 
looked it over again. I just always get a chill when I read that this report starts with Winston Churchill. There's a quote that Churchill has from July 28th, 1952. And remember, this is right after the overflights and during the overflights of Washington, D.C. that were so famous. Here's Churchill's quote that they start their Condine report with. He says, what does all this stuff about flying saucers amount to? What can it mean? What is the truth? And then he writes, let me have a report at your convenience. Well, you know, those reports were written. Not all of them are declassified. Some of them are. Uh, reporters need to go get them. Well, also, it also should be acknowledged that, that some of the most powerful and influential proponents of the reality of the UAP phenomenon um, one of them was the chief of air staff of the British Air Force. You know, one of the most senior officials in the British military said that he felt that the United States government was withholding evidence. And he told our colleague and friend, Timothy Good, who, who um, wrote some excellent books on this subject 20, 30 years ago, he told him, I think Hill Norton was his name. He said that there was a reality there that wasn't being acknowledged. And I was very privileged once to travel to the United Kingdom for one of the TV shows I work with here in Australia. And I did a story about the British UAP sightings, notably the Black Triangles during the 1980s period. And I was gobsmacked. I was interviewing former um, RAF, former Royal Air Force wing commanders who'd had direct sightings experiences from their fighter jets with solid metallic objects. And uh, it was very interesting because um, Nick Pope at the time was still in the United Kingdom. And um, I interviewed him, the former uh, guy who'd done some of the work investigating UAPs for the British government, the Ministry of Defence. And uh, he took me through the British National Archives. We sat down in the public records office of the British National Archives. And those records are phenomenal. They record an incredible history of recorded military sightings. And I know I sounded probably a bit fixated on official reports or military reports, because I don't want to detract from people who've had experiences who aren't military witnesses or government witnesses. But there is something more sure. authentic, more valid about the fact that there is a military document that often corroborates with radar or with multiple corroborative sightings from senior officers, things that have happened. I you know, Ross, I, it is breathtaking. And it for most people who research it, it leads to that moment where for me, uh, it was three in the morning and I was doing research on a project and I'm reading through book after book and report after report. And I just remember it's dark and quiet in my house. My kids are asleep. My wife is asleep. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. This is real. Now, what I want to say to uh, the people who are listening to us, um, no, Ross and I have just not fallen off uh, the truck and now we buy everything. We don't. Uh, we still look at this on a skeptical basis because you have to, because um, just because there's a, a, a fire doesn't mean that there's not a lot of smoke around it. And just because there's a signal doesn't mean there's not a lot of noise around it. So you do have to separate all that. But what I do want to say is that you can trust that we and other people who are involved in this have had access to over 75 years now of, of, of actual reports, 
that were written by various uh, entities, some of them government, most of them government, but also uh, all kinds of research that was done, some of it by private uh, organizations, and also all kinds of uh, statements of about sightings from people that include, uh, frankly, police officers and uh, law enforcement and military and radar operators and pilots of all manner and stripe. And it is an overwhelming amount of evidence. Now, it doesn't mean it's all true, but the thing is, it means it's worth investigating. And I think what has happened over the years is we've gotten to the place where we can no longer tolerate not looking into this anymore. It's just intolerable to pretend it doesn't exist. I agree. And one of the gratifying things, you might remember one or two podcasts ago, Bryce, I invited people to contact me if they had any ideas about how we could actually be more systematic in collecting data that would allow us to be more systematic in approaching the, the investigation of this subject. And boy, I've had some very, very interesting messages from people. Um, there is a real desire out there for, I think, proper investigation of this issue. And I'm, I'll drop this big hint. I'm getting intimations from corporate world sources that there is a recognition that because of the scale of the importance of UAPs over the next few years, companies involved in data collection are actually interested in funding and investigating the phenomenon in a much more systematic way. So frankly, just to come back to this issue of the US government, I think it's going to be overtaken by events. There's nothing more compelling than seeing an issue gain momentum. And this is an issue that's gaining momentum. And where there's a buck, there's a will. And I think people are recognizing that there are technologies that are behind this, this phenomenon that represents enormous potential breakthroughs for humanity. And I guess I, I suppose, you know, I, I might come close to wrapping because we're probably pretty close to wrapping here. I, I think that's the big thing for the future, that, that it doesn't really matter what the US government says in its reports because it's going to be overtaken by events. There's momentum here now. Don't you agree? Well, that's one of the great things about journalism. You can make plans. You can say, we're going to investigate this or look into that. And then there are also events that happen. There's news. That's why they call it news. And if indeed uh, there is a reality to the UAP phenomena that is global, then these events are happening even as we speak. And if you listen to the pilots that have gone on record about this, many of these military pilots say that this stuff is happening on a more or less daily basis in extreme cases. And so one of the things that we might be able to say is whatever we predict here on this podcast or on anyone else's show or, or in any other way, events may come in and just snap, make a big change in that. So I think uh, we can definitely look forward to news being made on this topic in the 20s. And uh, any one of those news events could be the game changer that gets people, particularly journalists, actively back in the game. I'll leave you with this thought, Bryce. I actually think that it is, as we've said, naive to think that the US government should take the lead on this and that it will control the narrative. It's way past that now because, frankly, the story is going to come out 
whatever happens. And I think the US knows that. And I, I think that's what's really behind all of this drive for disclosure to the Congress, transparency, some degree of accountability. They know they're going to get caught short if they don't. They're going to be embarrassed if they don't concede something. And the United States government, if nothing else, is competitive. Even on disclosure, they may not want to be skunked on actually uh, leading that dialogue. So who knows? Uh, that may be another big story for us. Okay, folks, we want to just give you some quick information about what you need to know about Need to Know. You can find our basic information at needtoknow.today. So that's just spell it out, N-E-E-D-T-O-K-N-O-W dot today. And also, uh, that's our homepage, by the way. And that also works for just about anything you need to know about this podcast. Both Ross and I do have Twitter feeds, of course. Mine is at Hollywood UFOs, and Ross is at, at Ross Coldheart. Um, and by the way, you have to know how to spell your name. So I'm going to toss it to you, Ross. Tell people how to spell your name. Ross, of course, is R O S. Coulthart is C O U L T H A R T. Good border Scots name. Well, listen, so until next time, my good friend, remember, we really and truly are all in this together. Let's talk to you next time on Need to Know. Need to know more? Email us. The address is contact at needtoknow.today. That's contact at needtoknow.today. We'll be back next time because you need to know.